I want to call your attention to the psalm from which I read a few moments ago, and that is Psalm 69. Psalm 69. And there is a part of a verse here that we want to consider. It is in the fourth verse. And let's read Psalm 69, 4. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. And it's the closing words of this verse that have captured my attention, thanks in part to a sermon by a man named Ebenezer Erskine back in the early 1700s. And David the psalmist speaks here in terms of robbery and restitution. Then I restored that which I took not away. The concept of taking away, and the word here translated to take away, speaks of robbery, of a violent taking or snatching, carrying off, taking what doesn't belong to you but belongs to someone else. And the word restore here, on the other hand, speaks of Returning, paying back, making restitution. And of course, it is a great evil to steal. And whenever that occurs, the law of God requires restitution. The return of what has been taken unlawfully. It's a biblical principle to restore what has been taken away or stolen. But David speaks here of being falsely charged with robbery and then having to repay what he did not take. Then I restored that which I took not away. Just a simple illustration. What would you think if a robbery occurred at your bank? Someone came in and stole $1,000, and the president of the bank comes to you and says, there's been a robbery, we've lost $1,000, and we need you to pay it. Well, I didn't take it. Well, but you must pay it anyway. In fact, we want you to pay not $1,000. We want you to pay $2,000. That's how David felt here. We think of the false accusations that King Saul made against him. David was the most loyal subject in the whole kingdom. And yet, wicked King Saul goes after David accuses him of being disloyal and being an insurrectionist. He's convinced that 
David is out to kill him, or at least he, he seems to be convinced. You really wonder what, what was going on in Saul's own mind and heart. Only God knows for sure. But under such unjust circumstances, David, falsely accused, has to flee for his life. He's banished from home. He goes and lives in caves and in, in uh, remote places. He suffers privation. Saul brings the army and comes seeking after David. He puts out what we might call an all-points bulletin in every little village. If you see David, let me know, and so on. And David says, I restored that which I took not away. To be falsely charged is a great evil and injury. But to repay when falsely charged is a robbery in itself. Some writers comment here that even though David suffered wrongfully, it is better to suffer wrongfully than to suffer rightly. Better for David to pay back that which he didn't steal than to have to pay back that which he had stolen. Better to suffer wrong than to do wrong, in other words. When Socrates was in prison, his wife came to see him, lamenting his unjust suffering. And he said to her, would you rather see me suffer as guilty? <laughs> well, that's maybe the most positive spin that we can put on this text today. Then I restored that which I took not away but we want to see more than David here. We want to see our Lord Jesus Christ. And I would challenge you to read Psalm 69 and see if you don't see Christ here much more than you see David here. And as we apply this text to our Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> we see the gospel. Then he says, I restored that which I took not away. And He's speaking here especially of his time of suffering. You know, the first part of verse 4 is quoted in the four Gospels with reference to Christ. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. There was no reason, no good reason, no right reason for anyone to hate Christ or to crucify him. But his enemies were many. They hated him without a cause and they that would destroy me being mine enemies wrongfully are mighty and the, the strength and the might of his enemies who ought to have been his friends was most manifested in his death on the cross it is his suffering and death that are in view here in this psalm. And it is in that context and at that time that he says, then I restored that which I took not away. In the language of the psalmist, in the poetry of David, here is Christ's own 
description of what he accomplished on the cross of Calvary, I restored that which I took not away. And there's a number of ways that we can look at this and apply it to Christ. Let me mention just briefly, first of all, the unjust treatment that he received from the Jewish leaders. Though he had done no wrong whatsoever, they hated him. They positioned themselves as enemies against him. They were determined to kill him. And what made them so hateful toward him and have murder in their hearts against him? Well, it was their own hearts were evil. And they hated the fact that he exposed their sin. He was sinless and his perfection made them look bad. And when he would say anything pointing out their sins... They grew more and more angry. When he exposed their hypocrisy, they hated him all the more. They viewed him as a threat to their power and their prestige. Just a few months before his crucifixion, when they were ready at one point to throw stones at him and kill him in that way, he put this question to them. Many good works have I showed you from my Father? For which of those works do ye stone me? And of course, there was no evil work in him. He had done nothing but good, and yet they wanted to kill him. They treated him like a criminal. They treated him like a cheat. Treated him like a robber. Falsely accused him of all kinds of things that were not true slandered him before Pilate, accused him of being in competition with Caesar to rule in the Roman Empire and so on, all fabrications. They insisted on his death by crucifixion. And so this innocent Jesus was made to pay a debt to society that he had not incurred. He was put to public shame as a robber. And isn't it ironic that the Jewish people, led by their religious leaders, preferred that a real robber named Barabbas be set free, while Christ, who had done no evil and had, had robbed no one, be put to death? Well, in an earthly perspective then, the death of Christ was the greatest injustice that ever occurred on planet Earth. But there's more than that here. We want to consider in the most spiritual way of looking at it, the robbery that occurred and the restoration that Christ made. He speaks here, he says, I restored that which I took not away. Well, what was taken away? Well, there was a robbery, in fact, in a spiritual dimension. And that robbery, we might say, is twofold. 
we might even think of it as two robberies that occurred simultaneously in the sin of Adam. The first is that God was robbed of his honor. He was robbed of his glory when man sinned. Now, we're not talking about his essential glory, which is his and is always his and cannot be taken from him. But we're speaking of the display of his glory, the manifestation of his perfections, the recognition of it, his reputation, his worship. This was taken from him. This is the the robbery in its most awful dimension. Sin entering into God's creation was an attack against his glory. Satan, who tempted Eve and through her reached Adam, wanted to insult God, wanted to make him appear powerless and incompetent and defeated. You can just imagine the the glee in the heart of that wicked fallen angel, Satan. As soon as Adam took the fruit and ate of it, the fruit that God had forbidden him to eat, Satan must have thought that he had won the battle, thought that he had accomplished his purpose perfectly. He thought he could say to God, your creation has turned against you. Perhaps Satan thought in his own mind that he would have rights to the throne instead of God. And you read words to that effect in Isaiah 14, where Satan seems to have this desire to ascend above the clouds and to sit on the throne and be like God himself. So ultimately, Satan was the thief who robbed God of his glory. Oh, what an enormous robbery. What audacity to rob God of his honor. But there's another aspect to this Robbery, and that is that man was robbed of his happiness. And I mean happiness in the fullest and most profound sense. There's an old familiar saying that has been around for many generations, and that is happiness is holiness. Happiness is godliness. In other words, happiness is fellowship with God. And that is what man was robbed of in his own sin and in the fall. Fellowship with God was lost. God was now at a distance. God was an enemy. Man lost holiness. And whatever kind of righteousness that he was created with was lost. 
And so his true happiness was lost. In the sin of Adam, mankind lost liberty to obey God and was left only in bondage to sin. Man was robbed of peace in every dimension. No longer peace with God, as I mentioned a moment ago, but even on an earthly level, the peace between Adam and Eve was lost. And Adam turns against her and blames her for his disobedience and so on. Man was robbed of his wisdom. He becomes a fool in his sin and folly. Man was robbed of paradise. The judgment there in Genesis 3 included man being driven out of the Garden of Eden. No longer in a place of perfect uh, or a perfect environment where the tree of life was planted. In sin, man lost everything worth having. It's all been stolen. Satan, again, was the, the instigator. He's the robber. He robbed Adam and all of Adam's race. And ultimately... Man lost his life. The most precious thing, his very life. He becomes subject to death. This robbery against God and against man is an immeasurable loss, incalculable loss. Oh, what harm sin has done. But notice, the text speaks of a restoration. Then I restored that which I took not away. And this, I say, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Speaking, ultimately, David speaks as a type of Christ, as a shadow of Christ. But the the full restoration of all that was stolen is in Christ. He came to undo what Satan had done. He came to reverse the works of Satan. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. In his incarnation, his coming to this earth as a man and the life that he lived on this earth as a man and the obedience, the perfect obedience that he rendered to the Father in heaven as a man on earth and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead reversed the curse, restored that which had been stolen. And let's again consider both aspects here of this restoration. We'll take them in reverse order this time. Think of all that man was robbed of that Christ restores. 
We said that man was robbed of his happiness. Christ restores the happiness of man by restoring him to a position of righteousness before God. Christ himself is our righteousness. We read that in many passages, but uh, one of the most marvelous is in Jeremiah chapter 23, which is an Old Testament prophecy speaking of Christ who would come. This is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Yes, Adam was robbed of righteousness, but Christ is our righteousness and restores us to holiness. He is our righteousness objectively in justification and he puts in us sanctification, holiness, which we considered in the previous hour as new creatures in Christ. We are created in righteousness and true holiness. We said that man lost his liberty to obey God and came under the bondage and servitude of sin. But Jesus restores the liberty. He says, ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you what? Free. There is freedom from the bondage of sin and freedom to serve God once again through Christ. He goes on there in John chapter 8 and says, If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed, free truly, free in the fullest sense. Christ restores the peace that was stolen. He's called the Prince of Peace in the book of Isaiah. At his birth, this announcement was made by the angels. Peace on earth. There hadn't been peace on earth since the fall of Adam. Christ, as the second Adam comes, to restore peace on earth. We read in Colossians 1 that Christ made peace through the blood of his cross. Here is the peace with God. Restoration of fellowship with God. We said that man lost wisdom, lost true godly wisdom in the fall. Christ restores wisdom. He is made unto us wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30 tells us, Man lost paradise, driven out of the Garden of Eden, sent to live in a, a, an earth under a curse where there would be thorns, where the ground would not be cooperative and it would be difficult and toilsome even to grow food and so on. Christ restores paradise. Ultimately, by opening heaven to those who deserved only hell. Remember, he said, while he was dying on the cross, to a repentant thief, Verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. 
We said that man lost everything worth having. Christ restores everything worth having. Man lost his life, his very life. Christ restores that life. He says, I am the life. At the grave of Lazarus, he says these glorious words, I am the resurrection and the life. Here's a scene of death and grief and people weeping. And Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he gives an object lesson of spiritual resurrection by raising the body of Lazarus out of that tomb. Paul says to the Colossians, Christ is our life. He says to the Philippians, for me to live is Christ. Oh, what Christ has restored to man. All this he restores, which he didn't take away. Christ was not the robber. Yet he restores it nonetheless. He paid a debt that he had not personally incurred. Furthermore, he restores the honor of God. Just as the fall of creation was intended to be to the shame of God, the redemption of creation by Jesus Christ manifests the glory and honor of God in the most brilliant way possible. God's glory is revealed in redemption. His wisdom, His power, His goodness, all these attributes that were put into question, we might say, with the entrance of sin, they are all magnified, honored, exalted, manifested once again, in redemption, when Christ was born, we, I quoted that verse a moment ago in Luke 2.14. The first part of the verse is, the angels sang this song, glory to God in the highest. You think about it, here comes the Redeemer into this world as a man. and He, he comes as a baby born to a poor family in Bethlehem. And yet the announcement from heaven was glory to God. The birth of Christ was a glorious thing. It was the restoration of the honor of God and his reputation in this world. Then we move forward to the end of Christ's life. The night before he was crucified, he prays this prayer to the Father and says, I have glorified thee on the earth. He brought glory and honor, praise unto God by what he had done on this earth and by what he was about to do. He says, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. He restored God's dignity, God's reputation in the eyes of all creation. So much so that at the last day, every knee will bow. and Every tongue will confess to the honor and 
reputation of God. And so, though in one way, as far as earth is concerned, the crucifixion of Christ was the greatest injustice ever done, from a divine perspective, what Christ accomplished in his death and the purpose of God in it all was the greatest display of justice that God punished the sin of those that he saves, punished them in the person of Christ. And though we've touched on it here, let me focus in on it for just a moment here as to how Christ made this restitution. Then I restored that which I took not away. How did he do it? Well, he did it, of course, at at great personal expense, at his own expense, as he was the surety for his people, the one who assumes their debt and pays it. He answered for the sins of others. He who had no sin of his own assumed responsibility for the sins of his people. And what Adam had forfeited by his disobedience, Christ restores by his obedience. It is a substitutionary arrangement that God made in which Christ stands in the place of sinners like you and me and suffered the punishment that we deserved, bore it for us. Listen to the words of Holy Scripture describing this transaction. He suffered the just for the unjust. This is a case where little prepositions are very important. And I bring this up partly because I've heard a report recently of someone that I I know and love who appears to be taking a a dangerous detour, it seems to me, from this plain teaching of Scripture. It's not just that, or it is not that Christ uh, suffered for sinners, he said. It is that Christ suffered with sinners. Listen, a little preposition can make a world of difference. Our union with him means that his sufferings were our sufferings, but we are in union with him in that sense. It is not that he suffered with us. It's that we suffered with him. It is his sufferings that were effectual. He is the sufferer, in other words. He suffered for us, not just with us. 
He was made sin for us. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. And there's that preposition again. For us. In our place. His own self bear our sins. He bore our sins. He carried our sins. He took them as His own burden. Though He had no sins. Though He was not the robber. He paid back. All that had been stolen. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. These are terms of scripture to describe how Christ made this restoration. Mr. Spurgeon says, usually when the ruler sins, the people suffer. But here the proverb is reversed. The people sinned. And the ruler suffered. This is the substitutionary work of Christ. And let us understand it. Let us trust in it. Let us marvel and rejoice in it. And let me say that Christ restored more than had been taken in the robbery. At the beginning of the message, I used the illustration of having to pay not just what had been stolen, but twice the amount. Listen to this. According to Exodus chapter 22, under the law of the Old Testament, if a man stole an ox or a sheep and it was sold or killed, he had to restore not one. He had to, res- he had to pay back Five oxen. And if it was a sheep, he had to restore four sheep. If the animal was found still alive and had not been killed or sold, then the man had to restore two oxen or two sheep. You see, the principle there is that more than was stolen has to be repaid. And we certainly see this principle at work in redemption. Christ restored more than had been lost. He restored in multiplication what he himself had not taken. Because he puts man in a position of higher happiness than Adam ever had. He gives a better righteousness than that with which Adam was created originally. He gives a divine righteousness, his own righteousness, credited to the account of the sinner who believes on him. And as far as the glory and honor of God is concerned, Christ in redemption magnifies the character of God and reveals aspects of it that would never have otherwise been revealed. His grace, His mercy. Christ in redemption magnifies the character of God more than if Adam had never fallen. And so He not only restores what had been stolen, not by Him. He more than restores. 
He goes far beyond. Let me give you words from John Gill here. He captures it so well. He says, He satisfied justice he had never injured, though others had. He fulfilled a law and bore the penalty of it, which he never broke, and made satisfaction for sins he never committed, and brought in a righteousness he had not taken away, and provided a better inheritance than what was lost by Adam. And all this was done at the time of his sufferings and death, and by the means of them. End quote. Yes, thank God, from the heavenly perspective, the death of Christ on the cross was the greatest display of justice that ever occurred. It maintained the honor of God and His law, and at the same time shows mercy and forgiveness and pardon unto man. Let me just say a word here about why he did this. Why did Christ restore that which he took not away? Why did he humble himself so low? Why did he assume this debt that he had not incurred? And more than pay it back. Why did he stoop to such shame and humiliation as this? To be viewed as a robber. The answer that Scripture gives us is that simply it was His good pleasure. It's what He wanted to do. It was in His heart. It was His goodness. It was His grace. It was His mercy. It wasn't that we were deserving. It wasn't that we were worthy in any way. It was His good pleasure. In other words, he was willing to do it. He willingly repaid what he had not stolen. You see his willingness to do it, especially there in the various court proceedings and trials in the Jewish court and then in the Gentile courts and so on, there all occurring the night before his crucifixion. He did not resist his enemies when he could have. He did not assert his rights when he could have. He didn't insist upon his innocence when he could have. He kept his mouth shut when he could have exonerated himself. He went into this restoration work most willingly. Oh, what a gracious Savior He is. It was His good pleasure to vindicate the honor of the Father and restore to Him that public manifestation of His honor that had been besmirched. And it was his good pleasure to defeat Satan in all of his evil designs by his suffering the death of the cross. It was his good pleasure to restore to man eternal life. And so 
I hope that we will never read this verse quite the same way again. <coughs> then I restored that which I took not away. This is the, the wonder of the gospel, what Christ has done freely for those who deserve nothing but the wrath of God. We see the love of God revealed. If you're lost in your sin today, go ahead and admit it. Don't pretend otherwise. Recognize your poverty, your spiritual poverty, that you are bankrupt, that you've been robbed of everything, that in Adam you're guilty before God. Humble yourself and admit your sin and then trust in the payment that Christ has made for it. Take the restoration that he has given. Bow to him, surrender and submit to him and to the satisfaction of divine justice that he has made. And if you are a believer in Christ already, then remember this day and be reminded this day of what a debt we owe to him. A debt of gratitude. We're obligated to him because he's done so much for us. And you say, well, how can I repay him? You can't. How are we? we have nothing with which to repay him. But what we can and must do is to be thankful to him, to love him, to worship him, to serve him with all of our life. We belong to him. We owe him everything. And let's count it our highest joy to live for him. And one more thing to say here in way of application to those who are believers. What about new losses, if we might speak of it in that way? What about new robberies that occur, new sins that we commit? We must renew our faith in Christ. When we sin, we must repent of it, confess it to God, and make a fresh application of the blood of Christ to it in our consciences. Renew our faith in Christ and then once again enjoy peace with him and the peace of God as well as peace with God. Well, we have a Savior who restores that which he took not away. Let us marvel and let us rejoice. <clears throat> let us trust in him.